what I would really like to see come out of the wash of this is how do we judge and value healthcare and what patients really need in, in, in these times? You know, you've got a 90-year-old demented patient who you may or may not save their leg with a, a long CLI procedure. They're getting into hospital at the moment. A 55-year-old with a venous leg ulcer is not getting into hospital. And that, to me, there's something wrong with that as a system if that's, if that's how we, if we're judging a patient need. This episode was made possible with the support of Medtronic Aortic. Aortic disease doesn't stop, neither do you. Global aortic experts share their perspectives on this evolving healthcare landscape. Watch their video at medtronic.com forward slash aortic partner. Medtronic Aortic, navigating change together. You're listening to the Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Today's host is Associate Professor Kush Desai. Well, uh, everyone, thank you for joining this uh, episode of Radcliffe's Vascular Podcast. My name is Kush Desai. I'm an interventional radiologist from Northwestern University in Chicago. And it's my distinct pleasure to recommend my close friends and colleagues from both the U.S. and across the pond uh, in Ireland and the U.K. Uh, we have Tony Gasparis from Stony Brook, as well as his colleague at Stony Brook, Nikos Labropoulos, Steve Elias from Englewood, New Jersey, uh, Professor Jerry O'Sullivan from Galway, and uh, Steve Professor Black. Professor the Lord. There, there's, there's no professor. Steve doesn't deserve professor before his name. So we'll go with Steve Black from uh, St. Thomas Trust in the U.K. and London. And today we're going to talk about what ebbs and flows is a timely topic. And currently, unfortunately, we're at the peak of uh, uh, the, the pandemic again. And we're going to talk about how we're trying to pick up the pieces, uh, trying to navigate what has turned out to be an unyielding pandemic, what I don't think any of us could have predicted back in March of last year when it broke, and how we can return to practice growth and ultimately normality. And uh, I'm going to, this is meant to be informal, please uh, butt in. Uh, we're all used to a conversational style. Um, we're going to start with the first discussion point, which is what's the most significant way, if you can pick one, that the pandemic has disrupted your clinical disrupted your clinical practice, and has it been different with each wave? Now, I'd like to talk with. Uh, let's start with the Europeans. Uh, we'll start with Steve. Uh, how has it really changed your practice, and how has it been different with each wave? Uh, well, if you if you call practice coming to complete stop changing it, then I, I guess it's changed it, right? So, uh, you know, for Venus in particular, I think we've had this this whole narrative from the beginning from loads of people and i think this probably reflects on where we struggle with venous disease that uh, venous patients could wait indefinitely you know, so they could all be shut down and if there was pressure you carry on offering critical ischemia and aneurysm services often to elderly patients with very limited life expectancy but that was considered appropriate where leg ulcers varicose veins and anything else that had anything to do with venous deep vein thrombosis acute dvt were all put on hold uh, in the second wave, we've tried to offer some kind of service to acute DVT patients, which we stopped in the first wave. But pretty much everything else from Venus uh, has been um, has come to a grinding halt. So uh, it's been pretty destruct destructive uh, to our practice. Now, Tony and Steve and Nikos, here in the States, uh, certainly Venus was shut down early in the pandemic, has have Volumes come back, have they changed with each peak? We'll start with you, Steve Elias. Yeah, well, yeah, now this, this second peak, which honestly, at this point of this recording, we're really coming on the downslope of the, of the peak, at least in the US. Um, Venus, uh, 
the hospital themselves were, is working and has been working very, very hard since the total shutdown, like Steve with the first peak, to not stop any procedures uh, during the second time. And we have not needed to at all. Uh, it's really been been very good. Uh, everybody realizes, you know, as you said, what changes practice? Well, things they thought they couldn't do during the first wave, now that we can handle patients better that have COVID and how we can separate and safely, you know, treat people, they really has not affected us in, in the second wave at all. We we're back to basically doing what we were doing, you know, a year and a half ago. Steve Black, um, you guys, are you doing your vein procedures in the office setting or in the hospital? Uh, most of our vein procedures are in the hospital. We, we have managed to carry on a limited varicose vein service through an outpatient facility that, that, uh, that has continued some degree of service, but that's been quite hard. And I think it's also been hard for a second reason, which isn't related to shutdown, but staff fatigue. So, you know, we've all been redeployed and moved around and do, doing all sorts of other things. So actually, not only the, the patient flow, but also finding the staff, particularly nursing staff, which has been the biggest hit, has been quite hard to maintain service. So it's not only uh, patient patient prioritization, it's, it's structural and organizational. So that's where we've uh, had more, more than one challenge. Yeah. We have, similar to, to Steve Elias, um, really... The first peak was bad. We shut down everything. Um, and because of, right, we didn't know what to expect. Um, now that we know more of how this disease manifests itself, you know, we've concentrated um, on rebuilding the outpatient stuff. You know, as long as you're doing procedures that are not affecting the hospital volume, um, you know, we, we continue to do it. So we've, gone back to our normal outpatient procedures, um, obviously with a different mentality of how you manage these patients and, and screen them and, and, and you know, protect both the staff and the patients. But as far as restricting, we really haven't done any. Um, whatever decrease in volume we've seen is because of patient hesitation, maybe to come in. Otherwise, we're back to normal. No. I'll hold what I'm going to, what's happened in Chicago, because we did have some changes that we instituted around Thanksgiving, which have now been pulled back. But Jerry, what's been the experience in Ireland? Well, it's um, the first wave, everything shut down. Um, and we were uh, quite similar to Stephen Black, I suspect. Uh, the only things that were getting to the hospital were critical limb ischemia and uh, aneurysms. And then we had a bit of a chat uh, midsummer, and I said, let's just keep an eye on the actual aneurysms, what proportion of them are coming in as ruptures. And in fact, vanishingly few are coming in as ruptures. And I suspect, well, I think it'll be a very fertile area for, uh, for research in years to come, what effect the COVID pandemic had on arterial rupture rate. Because my own feeling is that a lot of this, uh, and of course I'm gonna get hung out to dry here, but that's okay. Uh, is is industry driven, and I think there's been a huge push towards EVARS, FIVARS, CHIVARS, and every other kind of acronym in front of EVAR in 97 year old patients with multiple comorbidities. And I must say, it really, really irritates me that I've got patients with ulcers who've had ulcers for 20 years and who've got another 40 years, please God, on this earth, who are not being allowed access to the hospital. 
I think it's it also highlights one of the advantages of the U.S. system that most of your practices are are largely self-controlled through office-based or ambulatory surgery centers, and so you control uh, your own business. And um, I suspect the majority of the stuff in this hospital, or sorry, in this environment in Ireland at least, is pretty pretty much hospital-based, and therefore we have been restricted and we're it's slowly coming back, but it has been slow. Uh, I'm doing QTBTs. And I'm starting to get in the, the big, I suppose, iliofemoral and IVC reconstructions again. But uh, it's been um, it's been pretty tedious, I have to say. Well, Jerry, you raise a great point. I mean, we've heard Mark Meisner talk about how at the University of Washington, in the the heart of the pandemic in 2020, where they were only doing aortas that were eight centimeters or bigger, and he said, "Well, if they haven't ruptured by eight centimeters, I mean, you're off of every chart. How can you say that they're actually going to rupture now?" whereas you're not watching the slope on the smaller ones. So your point is well taken, and then certainly cancer surgeries continued for a while um, here in the States, and then they had to shut down as well. I can tell you that, yeah. In our hospital, to give you some figures at the time, and the first wave, with 512 patients, which is basically the entire hospital, there is no room for anybody else. Then we our residency program, our residency fellows were deployed, strictly putting lines, right, for other, other services. And then attending in sequence after that. And then furthermore, only emergencies, only thrombotic events, like you have an SMA thrombus, a DVT or acute ischemia. And annulations, only, no matter the size, only rupture, nothing else, right? But as Tony said, on the second wave, we learned more, but the peak of the second wave was only 200 patients. So it never reached our capacity. And so we're able to have a basic close normal activity, I would say that. Yeah, so I can tell you in Chicago, in March through early June of last year, we were basically only doing urgent cases or emergent cases, and virtually every ambulatory outpatient procedure wasn't happening with the exception of maybe some cancer therapies, um, which Jerry mentioned also is, is it's difficult to know how what's going to be the long-term outcomes, and it's going to make us question whether we actually have the right metrics in place as to when something is needed and when something isn't. But um, in the second uh, wave, when we were expecting there to be a big peak after all the Thanksgiving travel that happened, we were asked to not do any procedures that would require general anesthesia. Potentially, if a patient couldn't be extubated, then sitting in an ICU and taking up a ventilator. So it was a reasonable request, and we abided by that for you know four to six weeks, and then we didn't see that peak that we thought we would. So um, perhaps there's some element of local herd immunity or I mean, very hard to know what's going to what's actually happening yeah yeah i mean of course i think that uh we, we were in a similar position with christmas when lockdown was eased and we were anticipating a week or two of things going worse but then the emergence of a different variants uh of the virus um have clearly played a big role in driving change you know the second wave for us in london has been much worse than the first wave longer and many more patients. The addition of that has been the intensive care doctors are much better at treating the patients, so they've stayed longer. The, the mortality rate is down, but you have patients in hospital for four to six weeks. So we, we peaked at um, 140 patients in ventilator beds in, in the first wave, and we somewhere around 210, 220 in the second wave. And we're only now just getting back down to where just below the numbers of the first wave peak in the hospital on ventilators on, so, on level you know, so, so 
Steve and Jerry, any of us. So why is there this this big dichotomy in the second wave between the 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 U.S. based disease and the and the Ireland UK based disease? I mean, in the U.S., I mean, it's everybody's like jumping for joy, like gee, things are really looking pretty good here, and and it, you saying it's worse the second wave that. What, does anyone have any ideas behind this? It seems to be variants of it seems to be variants of the strains that have emerged, right? So there's been some different strains that have emerged, and and the second wave has been driven predominantly by a strain that came out of Kent, uh, and that drove most of London uh, sweeping. And you know, my our particular hospitals also uh covered for other hospitals we take patients from all over the country we we become an intensive care of support right. for multiple regions you know so it's not we're not just supporting our own hospital steve is you do th you think that's a different i mean i was just going to ask you that are you see thinking that more of the sicker patients are coming to you versus the first wave and that's why you're you're having a higher volume and the smaller uh, hospitals are taking care of those sick patients that yeah, the, the small hospitals really fell over. They, they really fell over in the second wave in a, in a way that they didn't in the first wave. Uh, I think the immediacy of lockdown and the timing of lockdowns plays a role. The, the sort of management of the, the overall pandemic. I mean, you know, I think a lot of this will come out in the wash. I mean, we don't know for sure whether it's a, the second, the different strains being much more brilliant. The, uh, the number of people catching it was clearly much higher. Uh, fatigue of lockdown with people not being bothered as much to do what they did in the first wave. You could see that in national data in the first wave lockdown, everybody stayed at home. In the second wave lockdown, people have still been going to work, still been doing a lot of other things. So the ongoing transmission has been higher. So I'm sure we'll see, you know, London's a very densely populated place, isn't it? The whole of the southeast of England, there's not much, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge population for a very small area. You know, so what we're talking about a million people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But New York got hammered in yeah. the first wave. Didn't Although it? New York City is dead. I mean, compared, I don't know how yeah, yeah. run the yeah. streets. New York City, yeah, is nothing like I don't know. New York. I, I'll be very interested to see what what happens going forward in terms of. I think the U.S. took it really bad, uh, particularly New York City in in the first wave, and and Seattle and a few other places. And then you had a much longer, miserable few months, I think, than Europe. But I don't know enough about epidemiology. I don't know enough about the different variants. Um, but I can tell you for a fact that the new, I think it's the South African variant and a Brazilian variant are now accounting for 93% of new infections in Ireland, you know. So the new variants have completely taken over. I don't know if they penetrated the United States or not to the same extent. Um, I don't believe the herd immunity is even remotely close to, uh, to providing an answer to that. Uh, vaccination in the U.S. and the U.K. is actually proceeding at quite a fair clip. And that actually leads me to the next point of discussion is, you know, in the United States, we're not centralized with our health care the, the way the U.K. and Ireland is. So there is an easier way politically and systematically to build a vaccine repository in the sense of these are the people that have gotten it. They have a passport. They can more freely, certainly still have precautions, but more freely move about and get in for Imaging studies, it's you know outpatient visits and travel if that when when and if that opens up in the near future. But how do we do that in the United States? And Nikos, I mean, 
you manage a busy imaging center. Steve has talked in previous podcasts and uh, talks about how he had to individually look at different uh, each exam to make sure it was clinically necessary, particularly in the early part of the pandemic. But I mean, what are your thoughts? So do we have a way that we can have people come maybe with their CDC card saying I got the vaccine so that we're able to schedule some of the more um, the more um, non-urgent, non-emergent stuff and return to normal? Yeah, I think because initially we affected uh, our pro, uh, lab a lot. In fact, what we did, we reduced the staff to only two people in the lab to keep reserves. And we strictly did only urgent staff, like only people having a DVT or some acute embolism. In fact, we stopped with an average of 40 tests a day that dropped down to eight. So we did rather well. But now we learn better. And what we do in order to stop the, the transport and stuff, the, we have a lot of portable exams. Basically, the, the, the technologies go directly to the patient's bed and avoid any contamination. And in our lab, in one of the rooms, is being done, done dedicated to COVID. So it, it fulfills all, all the guidelines and all the testing done there. But yeah. our patients, if they come to the ER, we prefer to see them in the ER rather than bring them to the lab. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> More or less now that the services come back to normal, exactly the same patients as before COVID, you know, it's just kind of uh, not, not an issue anymore, I must say. You know, uh, two things, Kush, uh, I'm going to allude to to the thing I said about uh, early on with, with the vascular lab, but we do need to remember that masking and washing your hands and everything else does work. Basic things. So if our patients come to us and we don't know their status, but they're wearing a mask, we're wearing a mask, we're washing our hands afterwards, they're doing whatever they do. I mean, the chance of spread is really, really low. So let's not get focused on, if you're not vaccinated, then you know you have such a high chance of getting infected or infecting others. If you do the basics, in general, you're, that's not going to happen. Um, and then just quickly, apropos to what, what Kush brought up and what Nikos wrote about the vascular lab, I actually, uh, early on, like, end of March of, of uh, 2020, uh, the, the vascular technologists were getting inundated with um, having to go to the floors, going to a COVID positive or possibly a COVID positive patient, and they asked for some help. And what we did was we actually instituted that, that I would go over every single test that was ordered for the vascular lab, arterial, venous, carotid, whatever, um, on any inpatient or ED uh, patient. And what we found is after I looked at the chart, if I couldn't remember, couldn't figure out, hey, this really should be done, or maybe it shouldn't be done, I'd speak to the ordering physician, we'd have a conversation, make a long story short, we cut down the number of tests requested by 50%, therefore decreasing PPE use by 50%, exposure by 50%, et cetera, et cetera. So long-term, one of your questions going forward, Kushner's going to be, what's the long-term effect? In our hospital, the long-term effect is that the number of unnecessary studies are being significantly decreased. And the education of those people that order them, residents, interns, et cetera, went up. And we are finding less studies being ordered for just, you know, oh, my toe is swollen, let's get a DVT study. It strikes exactly at what Jerry said early on, which is it's going to really force us to think about our medical decision making. What's the right thing to do? Is there pre-test problem? I mean, all the stuff we learned about in school, pre-test probability, doing a test to move it into post-test probability to arrive at a diagnosis. So uh, 
it's in a way it might be one of the positive things to come out of all of this. And as particularly in the U.S., as we're looking more and more at cost and all those things, it's it's going to be it's going to be critically important. I, I think the most important thing out of this is what we mentioned earlier: washing your hands and wearing a mask. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Look, exactly. If you look, even the number of flu cases this year has drastically gone down. Yeah. Uh, compared to previous years, mortality from flu. Which perversely makes which perversely makes things more difficult for developing the flu vaccine for next year. <laughs> the new strains they don't have enough people to make them right. So it's, there's knock ons of everything. But I, th I think you know the point is as well is to is to Kush's thing of what are we going to revisit and it comes back to what Jerry was saying earlier about aneurysms. You know, there's the 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 metrics by which we measure value for patients coming to healthcare when we concentrate on dollars or death only as the as the main thing with death or limb loss and you look at patients who suffer sitting at home i think particularly the leg ulcer population with venous leg ulcers who sat at home because by all the classification systems were if you don't do this operation within four weeks they will die you have to do it whereas people who suffer for months are allowed to suffer for months because uh, they're not going to die and they're not going to lose their legs so there's been no way with all the classification systems that all of the, the sort of bodies in the uk have come up with that allows us to schedule those patients. And we've had to justify every patient we put in an operating list to a central team every single week. And leg ulcers just haven't got on to that list of people who need to be treated. And I think what would be, what I would really like to see come out of the wash of this is how do we judge and value healthcare and what patients really need in, in, in these times? You know, you've got a 90 year old demented patient who you may or may not save their leg with a, a long CLI procedure. They're getting into hospital at the moment. A 55-year-old with a venous leg ulcer is not getting into hospital, and that, to me, there's something wrong with that as a system. If that's if that's how we if we're judging a patient need. Well, Steve, you have a sympathetic crowd here since we're all venous people, but um, I couldn't agree. No. More. I couldn't agree more. I mean, these are people that, I mean, the, the ulcers can get such so bad with the tissue loss, everything that, frankly, they're worse than arterial patients. So it's it's. Um, and at a much younger age, I mean, I, you know, much. nobody wants to see patients suffer, um, but it's a lot different if you've got somebody in their 30s and 40s and 50s who's got many years of life ahead of them. And it, if you fix it now, it's so much more effective. And I, I really, I suppose it's because I've gone over to the Venus side, having started in aortas, um, I, I'm getting more and more cynical, you know when I see these patients who have the complicated procedures, I'm not talking about straightforward EVAR for, uh, you know, a patient who's got a seven centimeter aneurysm and a nice long neck, you know, implant, chance of needing a further intervention are very small. You compare that with the kind of patient who, who is say plus 80 plus, <clears throat> has multiple med medical comorbidities and had needs, well, we got to implant the right renal, better sure about the left. And then we might have to do the SMA. I know, yeah, we're going to have access from you know, less the Clavian and both groins and possibly the carotid. And you're like, hang on a second. Like these guys, do you really think the morbidity and mortality is low? Because that is not my experience. And I, I really would like to see some honesty in this area because I think it's been, it has been really driven to a large extent by, by people promoting more and more complicated procedures, not in 30 year olds, not in 40 year olds, in 80 year olds. There's a big difference. And I think I, I'd really like to see a debate next year at Vith, mind you whatever meeting we get to go to, please God, the Venus Symposium. Um, or, you know, just let's be realistic here. Let's be honest, you know? And I think it, it all goes back to the metrics as everyone here has alluded to. 
you know, what are we measuring on, what is it? Is it rupture rate? Is it death? Is it patient pain? The amount of morphine they take days off work? You know? Yeah. But you know, Jerry, we are all focused on a, we're all proceduralists. We all do things. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I think medicine in general is going to learn a lot from this pandemic about what absolutely needs to be taken care of and maybe what doesn't need to be taken care of. Okay. So, I mean, you, you, you can go to the, the, some COPD, you can go to people with significant depression. You can go to all these kinds of things that, that you either think you really got to do something and we've been doing it for years and, and, and maybe we didn't and they're okay. Or somebody said, you know, we really don't need to do this. And those people actually wound up getting into more trouble because mm -hmm. they didn't have care. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's, it's, it behooves everyone in medicine to analyze it in their own specialty, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. see how this taught us. We need mm -hmm. to learn from, we need to learn from this pandemic. So we'll learn a lot about long-term outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Mm -hmm. I mean, even specifically in deep venous, I suspect the number of acute iliofemoral deep vein thrombosis, thrombectomies and thrombolysis procedures has gone significantly down. So I suspect we're going to see a higher rate of, of, of I mean, mind you, there's so many patients out there already with chronic iliofemoral occlusion that it'd be hard to identify a bump, but there's undoubtedly going to be a bump because I've treated very few, very few patients with DVT in the past year and from a previously very high level. So they're still happening, you know. But Jerry, you know, you bring up a good point, and actually, um, that's a bit of a segue to what I wanted to talk about. Much has been made about the thrombotic risk of COVID. We've, in the early publications, you're seeing like one, two, maybe 10 patient series in The Lancet, for example. I mean, just amazing that that level of science is getting into such high-end high journals. And what if, mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll, I'll turn to Nikos, because he reviews the literature perhaps more critically than anybody I know. Um, what, do, what do you make of what's been made of the thrombotic risk of COVID, because I can tell you that early on in March, one of the things that we thought would be that we're going to be doing lots of PE intervention, DVT intervention is not going to be a problem. We're going to be dropping in a lot of filters because you can't anticoagulate these critically ill patients. They'll be in DIC, thrombocytopenia, et cetera. And that really has not borne out, at least at our center. So Nikos, what, what do you make of what's been reported in the literature? I think overall the robotic events really went up, particularly the VTE and a little bit on the arterial side. We, we did that, it's not published yet, we did a systematic review where we looked every single case and every single paper that's published already. And it's, it's clear in most places from the eastern part of the world to the western part of the world, the, the VTE episodes were really well, went up, particularly because of the hospitalized patients with, with COVID, particularly those having moderate to severe disease. And uh, often actually this being part of the mortality or the single cause for the mortality of such patients. But uh, is not, to come to your, well, your statement, but the, it is not so dramatic to make like a huge change on the volumes of, of what we treat. But if you look statistically, it did make you know, an upward you know, course, but not like uh, devastating. No, yes, but that, that because, uh, so, sorry, just to challenge you know, as a little bit of a challenge that uh, pro-inflammatory uh, conditions or conditions that end up putting patients in hospital or making people sick cause VTE. And we haven't seen something on this scale across the world for you know, a generation where VTE is specifically looked at. So what I'm still interested in is what is the actual relative risk increase for a patient with COVID over normal uh, um, so severe flu or severe pneumonia or anything else that puts somebody in hospital with a profound inflammatory response. No, I, so there is probably a small increase, 
there's probably a small increase, but that bump across the world of VT is because across the world, we had a whole lot more people in hospital than we've ever seen before with this kind of condition. And, and so, I, I'm still, yeah, exactly. So I, I'm still interested to know where we actually end up with as COVID specifically being a, a huge increase in VT. And, you know, we've discussed it extensively in the hospital. I think it's probably small, but it's going to be in an order of a single digit percentage point increases. And I think Kush's point about the journals, there's a bunch of high-end journals are going to have to have a long, hard look at themselves for publishing some very poor signs when it comes out in the wash, are going to be papers written fast and written very badly that have ended up in journals where if it wasn't for COVID in the title, they never would have got into it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. But, but Steve, Steve, that, that is true early on. But, but I think what that highlighted to everybody taking care of COVID patients is that you need to be more aggressive with anticoagulation, whether it's because of COVID mm. or because of their inflammatory. And I think what we'll see if you analyze the patients that are being treated now versus those that were treated a year ago, I bet the VTE risk and, and the, you know, um, weird arterial uh, thrombosis that, that we saw early on, I bet now it doesn't happen because most places are much more aggressive in anticoagulating uh, patients who diagnose. You have to believe there's some, you have to believe there's, you know, even though we don't know absolutely for sure, um, there has to be some component of COVID responsibility for, yeah. for thrombosis. I mean, no, 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 I'm not also young patients yeah. coming in with an SMA thrombus or, you know, some really yeah. unusual and even not super pro-inflammatory, you know, early on, they just come in just with acute abdominal pain and they had an SMA thrombus. Let, well, let me offer you a, a solution for both sides. What happened is COVID clearly is a DIC status, which is a, a prothrombotic phenotype with high fibrinogen, which is different than the other flu types and other infections, inflammatory conditions we've seen so far. Mm -hmm. So definitely there's a trend upward. But what happened, Stephen, Kush, to your point, early on, because in histological specimens, in lungs particularly, and also kidneys, yeah. microthrombi was found. So people look strictly for thrombosis and identify more thrombosis than other, you know, before. Clearly, this is a bit higher than it used to be, but it's not dramatically, you know, like you're pointing out. You know, and th that actually makes the point I was going to uh, just talk about right now, which is that this is microangiopathic disease. So people think of PE being an embolic thing, but these aren't patients with PE. These are patients with pulmonary thrombosis that it starts from the third order vessel, microangiopathic disease, and then works its way back because there's no outflow. And so it's not a DVT that's embolizing the embolism. It's all starting in the pulmonary arteries. So, uh, it, I mean, it's fascinating, but you... That's why, Jerry, I suspect you're not seeing the number of, of um, DBTs that you used mm -hmm. to. And Steve, you know, you and I are in clear DBT. We didn't see, uh, we were silent for so long. We just didn't see those iliofemoral DBTs that we're normally seeing coming through the ER. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people, sure they're not on the plane, but they're sitting around at home. Yeah. <laughs> how are they not? And, and they to not make a point, we just published a paper in Stroke and we looked at the entire Medicare database in, in New York, basically. And, and what we found out, Although some strokes in younger people increase because of COVID, the overall number of strokes for the entire year is reduced compared to the previous year. In fact, the COVID had a protective role for stroke. <laughs> or maybe those people never got to the hospital. Got to the hospital. I, I didn't yeah. know. That too, that too. <laughs> That's like the Israeli hospital doctor strike no. in the mid-1970s. The death rate went way down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. Nobody's out in bars getting, 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 uh, getting their horn on, right? So that's, that's right. Trouble. There's no, no reason for a strike. Uh, I mean, we we always used to see ruptured aneurysms around Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. a lot yeah. of them. That's mainly dealing with the laws, isn't it? <laughs> well, when we had when we had nearly two feet of snow or last week, my wife is an ER doc. She had two cardiac arrests related directly to shoveling. <laughs> so that the joke is, is that well, I shoveled for about four hours today and then dropped dead. So I'm, my coronaries must be clean. This has been a great discussion. I'm going to wrap up with uh, one last thing to, that we can all talk about. And I'll start with our European colleagues, um, because I, I suspect you've been asked to do this for a longer period than us in the U.S., and that is practicing outside of your primary clinical area. And Steve alluded to this, putting lines into critically ill patients in the unit. Uh, Jerry, what has that experience been in Ireland? Actually, not so bad, really, to be honest. Okay. We've... we've um... I've moved into reading more diagnostic stuff and done a bit of that, but I'm now back up to four days a week of IR, which is too much for some of my advanced years. Um, but uh, one of our fellows went off to Montreal or something. So uh, no, I've been lucky when I've heard that Steve has had to be, uh, I mean, poor Stephen Black, like, I mean, I mean, this guy's a professor of vascular surgery and venous lymphatic surgery in, in you know, Guys and Tommy's, a major metropolitan center in the United Kingdom. And he's been out there shoveling bedpans. Like, I mean, like Central Lines is, isn't even the beginning of it. You think I'm joking? Know, is that bad? Yeah. I'm joking. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> he has you um, speechless. Yeah, well, it, it was unfortunately it wasn't that many occasions that I had to do that. I have to say, but I think it, it does make the point though that the uh, for us, I might sit here and go. Yeah, I had to do a couple of shifts in the, you know, doing uh, HDA work or healthcare assistant work or uh, putting lines in in ITU and all that sort of stuff. And and many of my colleagues did as well. Um, but I think uh, overwhelmingly the pandemic has hammered the nurses more than anybody else. Sure. You know, so for us, our, our work came to a grinding halt and we didn't do anything. But the intensive care nurses were totally destroyed. And I, I think. For, for me, the biggest thing that came out of all of this was the massive amount of respect for nursing staff who paid rubbish, who worked long damn hours, who were redeployed at a moment's notice to anywhere in the hospital that they were sent. You know, as doctors, we protected from a, a load of that stuff. Uh, and the intensive care teams have been, you know, by and large, battered by this for months and months and months, you know. So I, I, my practice came to a halt and I did a few extra shifts to help out but nothing that really is um, uh, comes anywhere in order of magnitude to what the nursing teams went through. So I think for me, that's, that's, that's where it comes out in the wash is, is, is that group have really, really borne the brunt of this. And, uh, you know, the problem now is we're all sitting there looking at recovery. And I think that's the real issue now. It's gone on for, for almost a year. We've got a, a year's worth of patients having had operations and the whole hospital now sitting there going, we need to get, Get, get on with clearing this backlog and people are on their knees broken uh, and I think you know there really needs to be a little bit of a, a measured re return to normal you can't just go straight back into trying to clear the backlog right it's just it's I, agree, just I think staff burnout for from our end is not not for me but oh, last year I think he just got burnt out <laughs> <laughs> he's well, done
I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask uh, Tony and uh, Nikos and Steve. I mean, can we give Steve Black a little taste of what happened? Uh, what was what was it like to return after the first wave and have that backlog? How did you deal with that? Tony, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, like like I said, we my practice is all outpatient in office, um, so I got back in with both feet quickly. Um, got really busy and for a few months and have come down now uh, a little bit, probably still not at my normal activity, probably down about 20, 30%. And I would say most of that is probably patients are just not, you know, comfortable getting back, not not all of them, and having elective procedures being done. That's going to be another obstacle, which we won't have time to talk about, which is patient comfort. of just leaving the house, Steve. Yeah. So uh, to me, first of all, what I was, uh, yes, I was deployed to do something else. But uh, one of the advantages, aside from of my age, aside from getting the senior discount, is that I got a pass uh, from the hospital. In that they said they didn't want me on the floors with COVID patients. So what me and a group of us uh, were assigned to do was each day the hospital was ninety nine percent COVID. We would go over uh, the the notes on the charts of uh, I was assigned a floor, everyone was assigned a floor. And as we all knew, patient families could not visit or whatever. So we'd make daily calls uh, to the patient's family to to let them know how they were doing because the nurses had no time and the team taking care of them and having time. And I got to tell you, for those of us who are interventionalists who like, yeah, we talk to patients, but we don't really get into the whole thing. This was a, uh, to me, a, a changing experience. Again, I felt you got in touch with patients and their families and what they go through. And when you're hearing some 40-something-year-old woman who says, my husband, he's going to die. I have three kids. And who's going to take care of me? I mean, it just broke my heart. So yeah. that, that's, that's what, you know, what I did. And, um, it, you know, it, I think it helped. I think it helped the, the families. Uh, in terms of <clears throat> getting back, in terms of volume, um, I agree with Stephen. The nurses in the hospital taking care of these sick patients, they're burned out. But a lot of our, my, my hospital, my office is in the hospital. I do my procedures in the ambulatory center of the hospital, and the nurses there are employed by the hospital. But the thing is, they were redeployed other places. Once we can get back, everybody was happy to get back because, oh my God, this is what I like to do. This is what I'm familiar with. So we luckily did not have that burnout for those people that could leave the COVID patients and go back to their regular job. Oh, that's a good point. And regarding this, in our place, you know, our service had the secondary role, and basically the, the department asked us who wants to go support ICU units, because, I mean, we needed to cover ICU beds. And basically right. the vascular team refused because no one has expertise. And, and uh, other people had really, truly better training and have more everyday dealing with uh, ICUs. They went there. Other for us, we stay for the placing lines, doing dialysis, and some emergency stuff uh, mostly. On coming back, I noticed on myself and other people there are some insecurity and uncertainty of what is happening and is going to happen. But this actually, within a few weeks, it went away because people feel confident, strong, supporting their COVID patients, and uh, and almost back to normal clinical activity now. And there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, uh, it 
goes back and forth as to how big it is. <laughs> and we seem to be going backwards sometimes, two steps forward, one step back. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I mean, I can tell you that I was a part of um, I was a part of you know line teams for COVID at the, our main hospital as well as our Veterans Administration that we work at. Um, and but we, we I put in. Un, I, I lost count of how many uh, cholecystostomy tubes I had to put in. And in fact, I mean, just over and over bedside cholecystostomy tubes, we wouldn't bring them back uh, down to do it under any fluoro, just under ultrasound, and which you can do, of course. And, um, you know, it, it, it was an odd request. But then I remember in um, August, one of those patients that we put it in was a cystic fibrosis patient, ended up getting a double lung transplant, lived and was discharged from the hospital. So the stories are there. There, there is some positivity coming out from this. Um, we have Jerry back right now. I want to give Jerry the the the, the closing word here, if we have it. Which is Jerry, we've been talking about um, you know the changes in clinical scope, and you talked a little bit about it. But what do you see as a path forward um, coming out of this? Um, do you think people are going to be happy? Uh, they've been working. Healthcare workers have been working nonstop. But are they going to be happy to return to normal to their regular jobs? Sounds like yes, but there's challenges. I think so. I think Steve, uh, Steve Elias's point about people, I think what people have discovered is that they really enjoy what they do. And certainly I'm fortunate enough to work very closely with vascular surgery and, and, and interventional radiology. It's a tight, tight group. And people really love what they do. You know, they miss operating, you know, they miss doing the stuff. It's not like they're trying to get away from work or avoid COVID patients. They just miss operating. So I think this is actually a real thirst and a hunger to get back and, and work full time and just get back to normal and not have to put on the PPE. Um, what hurts me, for instance, is our turnaround time in our rooms is way slower. It's way slower. So, you know, as opposed to doing X number of big cases per day, we're down maybe two or three and then patients are waiting longer. And oh, so I think when things improve, uh, I don't know if it's going to be as good as the roaring 20s. Um, but uh, 100 years ago, but I think from a vascular perspective and certainly from a venous perspective, I think we're going to be very busy indeed. So I'm really, really excited about that. I think that's a perfect way for us to conclude. I want to thank all my panelists for being here. It's been wonderful to have you on. Um, you guys, your, your service to education and to your patients through this is truly inspiring. And Steve Black, particularly for uh, recognizing our first our first line, our first responders, the people that have been in the thick of this, our nurses, our critical care staff, our emergency room physicians, um, our heart goes out to them and they probably more than anybody should be recognized for their efforts in this. So thank you all. Um, it's been great talking to you about this and uh, we look forward to the next Vascular Podcast uh, from Radcliffe. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to radcliffevascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Vascu. Thanks for listening.